Lord, your word is, is challenging. It cuts to our core. It's sometimes hard to hear, but Lord, we pray that you would use this for your glory. Lord, help us to, to hear your word, to understand it, to obey it, to apply it. Jesus, help us to be more like you. Amen. Well, hey, it is great to be in worship with all of you this morning. If, if I haven't met you before, my name is Daniel Triller. I'm one of the pastors here. I always love being with you. All right, let's get going. I know that about five of you will disagree with me here, but winter is far and away my least favorite season of the year. And this goes way beyond weather and all of the cold and clouds and rain and darkness. No, it's way beyond that. Winter is a bummer for all sorts of different reasons, too. You know, with the Seahawks officially out of the playoffs, we are now officially in the darkest part of the Seattle sports calendar. If you're in middle school or high school, you're feeling tired. You want school to be over only to realize you're only halfway there. And then there's the fact that everybody's sick half the time. You know, it's just a tough season. You know, we are in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Jeremiah, and here's been a helpful way for me to think about this book. Jeremiah is Bellevue in winter. It's Bellevue in winter. I mean, aren't you glad you're here? (laughs) But it is. The book of Jeremiah tells the story of the people of Israel hitting rock bottom, a people who've been exiled into a foreign land. You know, it's this book filled with hard truths that feel like cold wind just cutting through your jacket. I mean, it's Bellevue in winter. But here's the thing about winter. You know, from time to time, you get these surprising, beautiful moments where the sun just breaks through the clouds. You know, where you you think to yourself, hey, look, the sun. You know, that's Jeremiah too. You know, in the midst of all the doom and gloom, there are these beautiful moments where the sun just breaks through the clouds, where we get glimpses of God's love and mercy. And that's true in our passage today as well. So I want you to know, this is going to be a tough one, but hang in there. There's hope as well. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, he's calling his people to return, to turn around. God says to Jeremiah, go proclaim this message towards the north. Return, faithless Israel. You know, God is calling his people to turn away from their sin and everything in their life that separates them from God and to turn towards him. And now the Bible word that we will see come up time and time again for this is repentance. And at its core, that's what repentance means. It means to turn around, to change direction, to turn away from our old life of sin and to turn towards a new life with Christ. And repentance is something that God calls his people to over and over and over again. You know, in fact, repentance was the main theme of Jesus' very first sermon when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. God's call to his people is to repent, to return. And so we've got to spend some time talking about repentance this morning. And to do that, I need to tell you about a story of a road trip that took a very wrong turn. It's a story about Earl Palmer, who years ago was the senior pastor at University Presbyterian Church over in Seattle. And after he retired, I had the chance to work alongside him for a year. And I want to tell you a story that he shared with me that I think will help us better understand repentance. And a heads up, this is a long one. So I'll tell it in a couple parts and stop to make some comments in between. So all right, the road trip. I know that some of us are directionally challenged. I want to make sure everybody gets the punchline here. 
Now, back in the 50s, when Earl was in seminary, he and two other of his friends that he went to school with would regularly make the the cross-country trip to and from their hometowns in California to New Jersey, where they attended Princeton Seminary. And on one of these trips, they're headed home. They're driving back home west towards California. And Earl and his buddies, they're young. You know, they've got lots of energy. And they would regularly make the cross-country trip in 48 hours. No stops except for food and gas. And to pull off this trip in a couple days, they would rotate drivers. One guy would drive, and the other two would often be sleeping. And so on one trip in particular, they are headed west, and they're in Iowa. And it's 4 a.m. in the morning, and they need to gas up. And so the typical thing would be to look for a gas station on the right side of the road. Go over there, park, fill up, they're on their way. But for some reason, there was no gas station on the right. It was only on the left. And so what the driver did is he makes the left-hand turn into the gas station and points the car this way. (laughs) Parks the car, fills up the gas tank, looks to the back seat, says to Earl, says nothing about the turn, and just simply says, Earl, it's your turn. You're up to drive. (laughs) And Earl gets in the driver's seat, pulls out of the gas station, and starts driving. And Earl and his friends are headed the wrong way. In the end, tragedy plus time equals comedy. Now, we got to stop there. Earl and his friends are driving the wrong way. And that is essentially what God is saying to the Israelites. God is saying that they've been going the wrong way and that they need to turn around. And this, is, this here is where the road trip story falls a little bit short. You know, Earl and his friends, at the end of the day, they made a mistake. A costly one, yes, as we will see. But at the end of the day, they just made a mistake. But yet that's not what God is saying to the Israelites. No, God is saying, you have willfully turned your back to me. Look again at what he says. God says, only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You've scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. You know, God's people have rebelled. They've disobeyed. And God even says this curious phrase, you have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree. And it's an odd phrase, but it's simply meant to communicate that the Israelites have committed idolatry. That is, they've made good things into ultimate things. You know, they've given their hearts to things that ultimately cannot hold it, that don't deserve it. And we could say a lot more about idolatry. And if you want to hear more on that subject specifically, I would encourage you to listen to Scott Dudley's sermon on this very subject from last week. But overall, here in this passage, God tells the Israelites that they are guilty and that they are going the wrong way. And when God says that they're guilty, he's specifically referring to the fact that they failed to obey the law that was given to Moses. You know, most notably the Ten Commandments. You know, God's people have rebelled against and disobeyed the commandments. And here's where it's about to get personal. You know, here's where it's going to start feeling like winter again. You and I are guilty too. You know, God is saying the same thing that he said, or God is saying the same thing to you and me as he did to the Israelites. He's saying, you have rebelled, you have disobeyed, you have committed idolatry, and you are going 
the wrong way. And now those are strong words, and I know that this might be hard to hear and that there's probably some different reactions to it. But go with me here. You know, as I discern my own heart, here's how I know that something is not right within me. You know, I believe that God created this whole earth, that he created you and me, that he created us on purpose for a purpose. But yet sometimes I also believe that at the end of the day, I know what's best for me. That at the end of the day, I know better than God and I'm just going to do what I want. And that is the heart of rebellion. That is the heart of disobedience. You know, rebellion and disobedience and idolatry live at that intersection of, yes, God made me, but dang it, I know what's best for me and I'm going to do what I want. But yet in my best moments, here's what I actually know to be true. God, you created me and you also know what's best for me. You know, when God gave those 10 commandments, he wasn't saying, here's how I can take all the fun out of your life. Or even here's how you can get an A in my class. No, when God gives those 10 commandments, he was saying, no, here's some words to live by so that you can live in sync with the way that you've been created. No, here's some words to live by that you can live the life that I've created you for. You know, for example, God gives us the Sabbath because he knows what's best for us. You know, he created us to need rest and to enjoy God's creation. And he knows that if we make work our primary source of meaning and purpose, it's ultimately going to fail us. You know, God tells us to not bear false witness because he knows what's best for us. You know, if we lie all the time, then people will eventually stop trusting us. And since trust is the foundation of any relationship, we're going to find ourselves with no meaningful relationships, which is what you and I want at the end of the day. You know, God created you and me. You know, he knows what's best for us. But yet sometimes you and I think we know better. And so we rebel. We start going the wrong way. And we start living out of sync with the way that he's created us. Pastor Tim Keller has what I think is a great analogy for this. He talks about a fish swimming in in a stream. And the fish starts to think to himself, gosh, there's this whole world out there and here I am in this tiny little stream. I mean, maybe I'll venture out onto dry land. But yet here's the thing, the fish wasn't made for the land. It was made for the water. And you and I are often trying to live our lives in a way that's out of sync with the way that we've been created. A life apart from God. You know, trying to find life in places that it can't be found. And so we rebel. And we're heading in the wrong direction. You know, God is saying to each one of us, you know, wake up. You're going the wrong way. Turn around. And now let's get back to the road trip. You're probably wondering what happened to Earl and his friends. Well, it's an hour later now. And Earl and his friends are still driving towards the east. And they're going the wrong way. And minutes later, out in the distance, Earl sees a greyhound bus that's coming towards him, towards the west. And as it gets closer and closer, he sees the words that are up on the top of the bus, you know, the place where it says the bus's destination. And the bus says, Denver. And Earl thinks to himself, huh, I've never seen that before. You've seen that before. You know, what a lousy company they have over there at Greyhound. I mean, they can't even get their signs right. 
A few minutes later, he sees another bus coming his way, and this one says Salt Lake City. And Earl thinks to himself, well, there they go again. Look at how incompetent these bus companies are. I am so glad I am not on that Greyhound bus. Think about that for a minute. You know, what was meant to be a signal for Earl that he was headed the wrong way was instead just written off. You know, it's not me. It's, you know, it's them. It's them over there. But you all, sometimes God, he will give us these moments, these signs where he's trying to get our attention. And maybe through another person or some experience or some random detail in your day, I mean, is there something or someone that you've written off that you ought to pay attention to? And what might that be? And here's the final part of the story. It's about 6 a.m. now, two hours in, and Earl and his friends are still driving the wrong way. And for Earl, something is starting to seem a little bit off. He's noticing that out in the distance, it's getting brighter and brighter. (laughs) And And all of a sudden, out on the horizon... Here comes this orange, yellowish orb rising. And Earl's thinking to himself, I've never seen that before driving this direction. (laughs) And all of a sudden it dawns on him. See what I did there? Dawns on him. (laughs) Earl realizes it's the sun. And he realizes they've been heading east all this time and that they've been heading the wrong direction way and that they need to turn around. And this is God's call to us through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, guys, you're rebelling. You're being disobedient. You're committing idolatry. You've been going the wrong way. I mean, don't you see that it's not working? Don't you realize that there's something missing? And he's saying the same thing to you and me. You know, God's call is to return, to repent, And now I know that this can all still be a little bit abstract. So here are three quick things that you need to know about repentance. And the first is this. Repentance is both for the Christian and the non-Christian. And this is where there's often confusion. You know, people will say, I thought repentance was only something that we do when we first decide to become Christians. And the answer is kind of, sort of, not really. You know, when we first become Christians, we are following God's call to repent and turn around and put our faith in Christ. And it's that first step that is most significant. And in that moment, we are once and for all new creations, new creations in Christ. And we once and for all receive the forgiveness of sins now and forevermore. But here's the thing. You and I still sin. You and I still have a tendency to veer off in the wrong direction. And so as long as there is sin in our lives, there's always going to be a need to repent. You know, the whole Christian life is one of repentance. Here's the second thing. Repentance is more than just feeling bad about our sin and brokenness. You know, if I've deeply wounded my friend, repentance is not just sitting at home and simply feeling bad about what I've done. I mean, that feeling bad is important in the same way that Earl needed to realize that he was going the wrong way. That's an important step, but it's not the last step. You know, repentance keeps going. Repentance makes the turn, makes the drive across town, meets the person face to face and says, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And the third is this. Repentance often takes time and is hard work. 
Because I don't want to mislead you here and lead you to believe that repentance is easy or simple or doesn't take very long. I mean, maybe sometimes it is, but not always. You know, when it comes to self-destructive habits or maybe even addictions, you know, repentance is a slow process. Years ago, I got to be a part of a week-long mission trip with our high school ministry. And I was the main driver throughout the week, you know, driving one of these big 12-passenger buses. And I was getting teased constantly through the week because I had run over this flower bed. You know, yeah, it happens. And, you know, this one day we parked in this tight little parking spot. And when we came back, the parking lot was filled up. We got cars all around us. It seems like we can't get out. And all our students were thinking, oh, no, we're stuck. But I was thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, this is my chance to redeem myself. And anyway, I kid you not, after 10 minutes, a 30-point turn, and students at each corner of the car guiding me, we were finally on our way. And that's what repentance is going to look like sometimes. It's going to be messy. It's going to take time. And you're probably going to need people to get out of the car and help you make the turn. So there you go. Three things you need to know about repentance. And now with all that said, all we've done at this point is really think about repentance from our side of things. But yet, what about God? You know, what does repentance look like from God's vantage point? You know, take a look at what God says in verse 12. He says, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. And this brings up a difficult and kind of uncomfortable question. And that is, is God angry with you and me? You know, think about that for a second. Is God angry with you and me? You know, it's a theological question, but it's also a deeply personal question. Because one of the questions that you and I ask ourselves when we sin is, God, how do you feel about me right now? And we ask, God, what do you think about me right now? You know, on one hand, we say, God's not angry with me. God loves me. And that's true. God does love you. But then we're saying that you can't feel anger and love towards the same person which any parent would respond by saying, oh, oh yes, you can. You know, the, ang- the answer this passage seems to imply is, well, yes, God is angry with us. And I know that's hard to hear, but look at the passage. He says, I will not be angry forever. You know, God is angry with the Israelites in this very moment. And in our rebellion, our disobedience, and our idolatry, he's angry with us too. My wife, Callie, she is a middle school counselor, and she and I were talking about this very subject the other night. And she was explaining to me that anger is a secondary emotion. That when people say they're angry, the reality is that it's often rooted in something else, whether it's sadness, disappointment, or hurt. And now, I want to be careful here. I don't think we can say that God's emotions are just like human emotions. Probably not. But it gets me thinking. You know, it makes me wonder that, when, that if when God says he's angry, if it's that he's sad, you know, that it hurts him to see us hurting, that it disappoints him to see us living out, living out of sync with the way we've been created. And you all, this is where the sun starts to break through the clouds. God says, for I am faithful, I will not be angry forever. I mean, you all, do you remember the story about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and has lost one? 
And so he goes looking for it, eventually finds it and brings it home. And Jesus summarizes the parable by saying how beautiful it is when one sinner repents. I mean, think about that for a moment. Did you notice how the word repentance was used? I mean, we always thought the repentance was when the sheep finally turned around. But yet that's not what happened in the story. No, repentance happened when the shepherd went out and brought the sheep home. And commentator Ken Bailey, I think he absolutely nails it here when he says, you know what repentance really is at the end of the day from Jesus' perspective? He says this repentance is a willingness to be found. Repentance is a willingness to be found. You know, God says, I am faithful. I will not be angry forever. I have sent my son who died on a cross, who rose from the grave so that I could be in relationship with you. Repentance is not get back here. Repentance is come home. Repentance is not get your act together. Repentance is are you willing to be found? One of the very best stories I've heard this past year, I've probably shared it too many times, but I haven't shared it here, was about a guy named Scott Harrison. And Scott Harrison, for most of his 20s, lived in New York City and worked as a club promoter. And his job was to convince people to go to some of the most famous nightclubs the city had to offer. And he was very, very good at it. And living a life of selfishness and decadence, he said that during this season of his life, he picked up just about every vice imaginable. Smoking, drinking, gambling, pornography, you name it. And one day, after doing this for about 10 years, he has this moment, this moment at a weekend-long party where he distinctly remembers having this moment where he says, I want the party to stop. I want the music to end he says during this time, I desperately wanted to revive a lost Christian faith with action and to ask the question, what would the opposite of my, of my life look like? And so months later, he sells all of, his, all of his stuff, rents a car, takes a Bible with him, drives off to Maine, where he finds himself in this small little town trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life. You know, he wanted to find a way to serve others. And so he applies to these humanitarian organizations and see if anyone will give him a shot. And as he's filling out the applications, he's realizing how crazy this is. You know, it's got all these questions. You know, do you drink excessively? Do you smoke two packs a day? You know, I mean, who's going to take this guy, right? But one organization actually does, and he ends up spending a year in West Africa working as a photojournalist telling people stories. He's shaken up by what he sees, the poverty, the injustice, the illness, the deformities, you know, so much of which could be fixed if people only had access to adequate treatment, you know, which is the case in so many parts of our world. And while he's there during this year, he realizes that the real problem of so many of the problems he sees is water. You know, if people only had access to clean drinking water, it would be a game changer. And so finally, a couple years later, Scott, be Scott begins an organization called Charity Water, an organization with the simple mission of providing access to clean drinking water to, to as many people around the world as they can. And as of today, they've founded thousands upon thousands of projects serving over six million people in the world. And now I realize the danger of going for the big sermon illustration here. 
You know, the one about the guy who starts the multi-million dollar charity and literally changes the world. But you all, I share this story with you because of one thing Scott said as he reflected on his past. He says this, I always knew that I was a promoter. I just realized I had been promoting the wrong thing. I always knew that I was a promoter. I just realized I was promoting the wrong thing. You know, Scott came to his senses, saw that he was going the wrong way, repented, turned around. God gave him a new direction and God took his gifts and talents, his ability to promote and influence and tell stories and pointed him in a new direction, a direction that gave him meaning and life and purpose and one that gives God all the glory. And all right, we got to wrap this thing up. Bell Press, I don't have a list of homework assignments for you, just a couple questions. Where in your life do you need to make the turn? You know, in what areas do you want to obey God's command and live in sync with the way that he's created you? You know, where might you be saying, God, I always knew that you gifted me in this area, and so how can I use it for your glory? And above all, where in your life are you saying, Lord, I am willing to be found? Let's pray. Jesus, your word is challenging. It cuts to our core. But God, it is good. You are faithful. You have not been angry forever. Lord, help us to know your son, to know the life that we can have through you. We thank you for the death you died. You rose from the grave, all to be with us. Jesus, we thank you. Amen.